Well, thank you for the warm welcome. So nice to be with you all. I flew up uh, on Friday from San Diego, California. Pray for us. Yes, we live in California. Uh, my wife and uh, five kids, that's called full-time children's ministry, uh, right there at our house. But um, great to be with you guys. We actually do classical conversations with our kids. So to hear that you guys are thinking about implementing that here, I would definitely give that a thumbs up. If you're considering homeschooling, I would go out to that meeting. But great to be with you all. Thank you to your pastor, Corey, for sharing the pulpit this morning and allowing me to share with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Again, Heavenly Father, we just ask now for your blessing upon this time in your word. Open up our hearts and minds. Encourage us. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Second Timothy chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, I'll put it on the screen for you as well. Just want to draw your attention to verse 16 and 17. You're probably familiar with these verses. Paul says, all scripture, not most of it, all of it, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul says here that all scripture, all of the documents God determined would make up the Bible are the inspired word of God. That is to say that although the books of the Bible were written by men, they were written by men who were guided by God as they penned down its words. And as a result, they are absolutely trustworthy in all that they teach. Now, of course, critics of the Bible would disagree with Paul's declaration here. Many critics of Christianity think that the Bible is not a book given by inspiration of God, but just an ancient collection of fabrications about God. Well, we disagree with the critics, and for good reason. Those of us who've taken the time to investigate some of the evidence for the reliability of the Bible have found that there are a wealth of reasons to take the Bible seriously. I'm thinking here about its hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, or thousands of archaeological discoveries, or the Bible's incredible internal harmony or the historical confirmation we've discovered in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, or different scientific discoveries that have validated details in the Bible. Of course, there was a discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947. Uh, there's the writings of Flavius Josephus, a first century historian who corroborates several details in the Gospels. These kinds of evidences have led myself and more than two billion people alive today to conclude that the Bible truly is what it claims to be. Well, I'd like to talk to you today uh, about the Bible's trustworthiness, but rather than laying out a broad case for the, the trustworthiness of the Bible, I'd like to narrow our focus a bit this morning and talk to you about the archaeological evidence for the Bible. The archaeological evidence for the Bible. Many people today who believe that the Bible is just a compilation of folklore and mythology don't realize that over the past 150 years, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of artifacts, documents, and inscriptions that have over and over again verified 
details in the Bible. So I'd like to talk to you about some of these discoveries today. And my hope in doing so is that it will increase your confidence in the Bible, but that perhaps for some of you, it would give you a renewed thirst and desire to read the Bible and to take it seriously. We'll start by considering some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the Old Testament, starting all the way back with the ancient art of writing. The ancient art of writing. Many critics of the Bible used to claim that the art of writing was completely unknown in Moses' day, around 1500 BC. They confidently assured people that the age of Moses was an age of illiteracy. Some scholars even asserted that writing was not even invented until 500 years after the time of Moses. And because that was supposedly the case, critics of the Bible said that Moses surely could not have written the first five books of the Bible. And with that, they thought they blew up the foundation of Judaism and Christianity. Moses couldn't write, kaboom, there goes the Bible. And who are you to question us with the PhDs, you know? Well, Christians and Jews did question their conclusions. And years later, great libraries of written tablets were discovered in the ruins at Ur in Iraq that demonstrated writing was around long before Moses and even long before the birth of Abraham. This particular tablet with writing on it on the screen was pulled up out of the ancient ruins of Ur. Abraham's hometown, it's been dated to about 2,000 years BC, about the very time Abraham lived. This would be 500 years before Moses. But thousands of these ancient texts have been found. Here's another one dating back to about 1750 BC, again, long before the time of Moses. So the critics' attacks on the Bible, wherein they allege that writing wasn't even around at the time of Moses, have now been left in a pile of ashes as many of their attacks on the Bible have been, as we'll continue to see. All right, moving along, let's consider one of the major events Moses wrote about, the Genesis flood. The Genesis flood. The Bible tells us that God judged the ancient world for their widespread wickedness with a cataclysmic flood that devastated the planet. If this event happened, as Moses said, and as both Jesus and Peter affirmed in the New Testament, surely there should be some evidence for it, and there is. Let me give you a quick overview of two different lines of evidence for the historicity of the flood. First, everywhere archaeologists and archaeologists and geologists dig on all seven continents, they find billions of dead creatures buried and fossilized inside sedimentary rock made up of sand, mud, and lime that were deposited rapidly by water. Billions of dead creatures encased inside sediment that was rapidly laid down by water on all seven continents? That's odd. Animals that die natural deaths don't end up inside rock, okay? They don't. They decompose, and they disappear. That's what happens to most animals when they die. Their bodies fall to the ground, and within months, their bones are dragged off by scavengers, or if left alone, they begin to decay under the wear and tear of the elements. But something radically different happened with the billions of creatures we find in the fossil record. Their bones are preserved, 
many of them wholly intact. Well, this has led many paleontologists, geologists, and archaeologists to conclude that these creatures were killed during a flood. Their bodies were caught in the mud flow, rapidly buried in the sediment while it was still wet and soft, and then preserved. The fossils of billions of dead creatures encased inside sediment all over the world are a powerful testimony to the historicity of the flood. But in addition to the widespread fossil evidence, archaeologists have unearthed a number of ancient extra-biblical writings describing a catastrophic flood. Of course, after the flood, as Noah's descendants spread out to different parts of the ancient world, they took their memories of the flood with them and then passed those memories down to their kids who passed them down to their kids and on and on it went. And so it really should come as no surprise to us that the ancient Sumerians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, Hindus, Chinese, Mexicans, Algonquins, and Hawaiians all have ancient accounts of a devastating flood. Now, there are some differences between the accounts, but the similarities between the accounts are striking and have led many scholars to conclude that these different accounts all point back to one common event, the event that Moses told us about in the book of Genesis. Now, obviously, lots more could be said about evidence for the flood. For time's sake, I'll leave it at that and point you to our website if you'd like to learn more. Alwaysberady.com. If you're unfamiliar with the website, you might uh, take a photo of it or write it down. We've got a whole section on our website dedicated to research and uh, evidence for the flood. All right, so moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about the ancient city of Jericho. Jericho is about 10 miles north of the Dead Sea and five miles west of the Jordan River. Of course, it's well remembered as the city the Israelites marched around for seven days before God caused the walls of the city to fall down. You've read about that in Joshua chapter six. Well, there was an exciting discovery made in the 1950s. Kathleen Kenyon, a British archaeologist, found the fallen walls of an ancient fortified city at Jericho. But there was a problem. Kenyon claimed the ancient city of Jericho was destroyed around 1550 B.C., why was that a problem? Well, because a biblical chronology places the destruction of Jericho closer to 1400 BC, more than a century and a half later. Well, of course, critics of the Bible loved Kathleen Kenyon's dating, and for 30 or 40 years, they claimed that Kathleen's uh, Kathleen Kenyon's conclusions were proof that Joshua's conquest of Jericho was pure legend. But Kathleen Kenyon's dating has come under fire. In a story featured in Time Magazine in 1990 called, I love the title, Score One for the Bible, <laughs> we read of how a newer examination of Canaanite pottery found at Jericho has demonstrated that Jericho was conquered around 1400 BC, the very time the Old Testament dates the crossing of the Hebrew people into the land of Canaan. Discoveries at Jericho that correspond perfectly with the biblical account include, and the Time Magazine article mentions these, the collapsed walls of the city, mentioned in Joshua 6, verse 20. 
There's evidence that the walls collapsed at the time the city was destroyed, not later, for example, under age and decay. There's evidence that the city was massively destroyed by fire, as indicated in Joshua 6, verse 24. And there's evidence that the destruction occurred at harvest time in the spring. Archaeologists came to this conclusion after finding large quantities of grain stored in the city. So all of these discoveries correspond perfectly with what the Bible says. As the Time Magazine article said, score one for the Bible indeed. And we're just getting warmed up. Let's see what the score is in about 30 minutes. <laughs> All right, moving along. Another discovery has to do with David, the king of Israel. And by the way, these aren't actual portraits um, <laughs> of the person. Some of you are like, is that what David really looked like? Wow. No. Now, up until 1993, not a shred of evidence could be found anywhere outside the Bible, that David ever existed. And so it had become fashionable within academic circles to dismiss the David stories as mere invention. The critics' verdict was that David was nothing more than a figure of religious and political mythology. Well, their skepticism regarding David collapsed overnight in 1993 when this nearly 3,000-year-old inscription was pulled up out of the ruins of the ancient city of Dan in northern Israel, mentioning David, the king of Israel. This was an amazing discovery and helped to verify for the first time outside the Bible that David was a real historical figure. Time Magazine rightly acknowledged in light of that discovery that the skeptics claim that King David never existed is now hard to defend. Indeed it is. Next, let's talk for a minute or two about this ancient city, the city of Nineveh. You're probably familiar with the city of Nineveh if you've read the book of Jonah. The Old Testament tells us that God directed a Hebrew man by the name of Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh. His message was of coming judgment for, we are told, the people were exceedingly wicked. Well, if you've read the, the book, you know the story that the people repented and God delayed his destruction of the city. Was Nineveh a legendary city, though, perhaps? Just part of a big fish story? <laughs> well, some critics thought so, until the British archaeologist Austin Layard unearthed it. The city had been completely lost, buried under centuries of sand buildup. The whole city disappeared until Austin Henry figured out where it was and started digging down and unearthed the city. The city, once the capital of the Assyrian Empire, has now been extensively excavated. Remains of its walls, temples, palaces, library, moats, and defenses still survive on the eastern bank of the Tigris River opposite the modern city of Mosul in northern Iraq. One of the fascinating discoveries at Nineveh was this six-sided clay prism known as the Shennacherib prism. It speaks of the Assyrian king Shennacherib's invasion of Judah, written about in 2 Kings 18 and 19, as well as Isaiah 36 and 7, during the reign of Judah's king, Hezekiah. And that prism corroborates many of the details in the biblical account. That prism is on display today in the British Museum in London. If you're ever in London on any kind of vacation or something, make sure you lock down a whole day to spend at the British Museum. They have several artifacts on display there that bear testimony to different details in the Bible, and that's one of them. 
But speaking of King Hezekiah, let's talk for a minute or two about him and his life-saving tunnel. Hezekiah was one of Judah's better kings. He's mentioned in three or four different places or, or books in the Old Testament. The Bible tells us that during his reign, Hezekiah ordered a tunnel to be built to secretly channel water from outside Jerusalem's main wall into Jerusalem, where people could then safely collect water during an enemy's siege on the city. Well, in December of 2015, archaeologists announced that they had unearthed this 2,700-year-old clay seal with an impression on it from King Hezekiah's signet ring. It was unearthed in the ruins just south of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The ancient Hebrew script there on the impression says, belonging to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. This was an incredible find. It provided us with extra biblical confirmation that Hezekiah was a real person, even the son of King Ahaz, just as the Bible indicates. But long before this exciting discovery, the tunnel Hezekiah built in 2 Kings chapter 20 was discovered. Considered an engineering marvel, Hezekiah's tunnel winds through 1,750 feet of limestone bedrock, nearly a third of a mile there in the city of Jerusalem. It was dug by two teams of tunnelers who worked from opposite ends and then met in the middle where they made an inscription in the wall to commemorate the tunnel's completion. Well, if you go to Israel today on any kind of a guided tour, they will typically take you through this tunnel uh, if you have the courage to go through it uh, and you don't mind the low ceiling and getting a little wet. Water still flows through the tunnel as it was designed to do, sometimes two or three feet in depth. So it's not for the faint at heart nor the claustrophobic. Um, it's pitch black inside, except for your flashlight. But some people think, oh, this is going to be really cool. And they walk in, and then they realize, ah, you know, this is, I'm claust they start getting claustrophobic and want to turn around. And, and it's hard to turn around when you've got 100 people coming in behind you. And, <laughs> so think it through before you go through there. But what a thrill to walk through the very tunnel built more than 2,000 years ago, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20. It's still there in Jerusalem. All right, so moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about this man, King Nebuchadnezzar and the city of Babylon. We're told in the Bible that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came against the southern kingdom of Judah. The year was about 605 BC. They besieged the city of Jerusalem and took many of the Jews, including Daniel, captive back to the city of Babylon in modern day Iraq. Was Babylon a legendary city? Was Nebuchadnezzar a mythological person? Is the scripture's account of the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem a fabrication? Well, of course, the answer is no to all three of those questions. Today, 55 miles south of Baghdad, you can see the excavated ruins of Babylon. Archaeologists have unearthed the ruins of King Nebuchadnezzar's palaces, temples, to his god Marduk, city walls, houses, pots, pans, metal objects, cuneiform inscriptions, almost all belonging to the time 
when Nebuchadnezzar rules. In fact, several of the nearly 15 million baked bricks used in the construction of the royal administrative buildings bear the inscription, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That gives us a little insight into why God might have chosen to humble him. Can you imagine? I think he must have insisted that his name be stamped on every brick. I don't know for sure. But can you imagine? I saw around the corner over there, you guys have some new church plan buildings. What if Corey insisted that every brick in the building have Pastor Corey written on it? I mean, you'd think, okay, it's time for you to step down, Corey. Uh, We'll we'll, we'll take over. Uh, You're not planning on that, right? Oh, you were? Okay. You know what? We even know what Nebuchadnezzar looked like. Archaeologists have unearthed four different likenesses of him. That one on the screen behind me, just one example. Uh, In addition to these discoveries, archaeologists have unearthed thousands of ancient Babylonian clay tablets that contain a treasure trove of information about Babylon's history. They're known to archaeologists today as the Babylonian Chronicle tablets. And um, amazingly, these Babylonian records tell us of their siege against Jerusalem, the one you've read about in 2 Kings 24 and Daniel chapter 1. And that's not all. These ancient Babylonian texts also confirm the fact that the Babylonians took the Jewish people captive back to Babylon. So this just goes to confirm or show to us that the the biblical writers were telling us the truth about these matters. Now, we already knew they were telling the truth, but now we've got evidence to confirm that they were telling the truth. So it just serves to help strengthen our faith. While we're on the topic of Babylon, let's talk for a minute about this man, Belshazzar. Belshazzar, you've read about him in Daniel chapter 5. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 1, we're told that Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousands. Now, this was hardly a time to be throwing a party because we know from the Bible and extra biblical text that the city at this time was surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. They had already laid siege on the city, but apparently Belshazzar was so confident that everything was going to be fine because of the enormity of their walls and the moats and all of that, that they would survive and live out the siege. Well, while this massive party was going on, the Bible tells us that Belshazzar saw a human hand write a mysterious message on the wall that no one was able to interpret. So Daniel was called in to help interpret the message, and the message was given that Belshazzar's kingdom was done. God had had just about enough of this wicked king. And the Bible goes on to tell us that that very night, Belshazzar was killed, and the city of Babylon passed into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. An ancient Greek historian by the name of Herodotus, who was born about 484 BC, tells us how the city was taken. He tells us that the Persians gained entry into Babylon by diverting the Euphrates River that flowed into the city and coming in underneath the city's walls through the riverbed. Well, this passage of scripture, Daniel chapter 5, was long the target of critics' canons. They considered Daniel's references to a king by the name of Belshazzar to be pure invention and a historical blunder. 
Why did they say that? Well, the name Belshazzar could not be found anywhere outside of the Bible. And the ancient historians, Barossus and Alexander Polyhister, said that the last king of the Babylonian Empire before it fell to the Medes and Persians was a man named, not Belshazzar like the Bible says, but a man by the name of Nabonidus. And so critics appeared very wise, launching their attacks on the Bible. And they would say that Daniel, probably writing long after these events took place and not even knowing the real name of the king, just made up the name Belshazzar. He just made it up. And the critics appeared to have a bit of a case, at least when it came to this point, until this inscription was found. This Babylonian tablet there on the screen tells us that when King Nabonidus left Babylon for a multi-year stay in the Arabian oasis town of Tima, about 450 miles away, he entrusted the rule of Babylon into the hands of Belshazzar, his eldest son. What do you know? Daniel was right. Sometimes it just takes historians and archaeologists thousands of years to catch up with the Bible. How about the Dead Sea Scrolls? What a discovery this was. It wasn't even an archaeologist who found them. It was a kid. Let me tell you a little bit about them. In 1947, a shepherd boy tending his father's sheep in Qumran, north into the west of the Dead Sea in Israel, made an amazing discovery while looking for a lost goat. There in Qumran, in a hillside cave that had laid untouched for nearly 2,000 years, this 12-year-old boy discovered a collection of large clay jars containing carefully wrapped leather manuscripts. What this boy stumbled upon was an ancient collection of handwritten copies of the Old Testament that dated as far back as the third century before Christ. This was amazing. Archaeologists were called in. They spent several years searching the surrounding caves. By the time they were done, copies of every book of the Old Testament had been found with the exception of Esther. In some cases, there were multiple copies of the same book. For example, they found 19 copies of the book of Isaiah, 25 copies of Deuteronomy, and 30 copies of the Psalms. What you're seeing on the screen is a photograph of one of the original clay jars and a close-up of one of the scrolls of Isaiah. This scroll of Isaiah there on the screen has been dated to at least 100 years before Christ. It predates Jesus' birth. They opened it up. Upon its discovery, it was 26 feet long and not a single paragraph missing when compared to a modern-day copy of the book of Isaiah in our Bibles. So the entire book, just on that one scroll. Now, why do I mention the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, because the Dead Sea Scrolls and thousands of other manuscripts dating back to the time of the early church have allowed biblical scholars, translators, and textual experts to recover the very high degree of certainty, the text of the Bible that Jesus quoted and that the early Christians used 2,000 years ago. What a magnificent discovery the Dead Sea Scrolls were. I write more about the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the manuscript evidence in my book, Scrolls and Stones. I've got a few copies of that uh, out in the lobby by the coffee if you're interested. All right, let's switch gears now and talk for a bit about some discoveries that have a bearing on the reliability of the New Testament. 
We'll start by considering a man we know today as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. The Bible tells us that Herod was the king in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth and that he tried to have Jesus killed shortly after he was born. Was he a legendary figure, maybe? No. In addition to the fact that the first century historian Flavius Josephus wrote about him, a wealth of archaeological evidence has now confirmed his existence. Discoveries include this piece of a wine jug dating back to 19 BC that was uncovered at Masada, Herod's cliffside palace fortress overlooking the Dead Sea there in the background. The inscription on the jug includes a reference to Herod and his full title, Herod, King of Judea. Other discoveries include coins with Herod's name on them, Herod's desert palace south of Jericho, and his hilltop palace south of Jerusalem, known as the Herodium. So these discoveries all support the New Testament accounts and leave no doubt that Herod was a historical figure who reigned in the very position described in the Gospels, King of Judea. All right, to move it along, let's talk for a bit about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. The New Testament tells us that Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, cast John the Baptist into prison for condemning Antipas's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Sometime later, an executioner came and John was beheaded. You're familiar with that? Well, this is an example of an event in the Bible that has... Confirmation outside of the Bible. Flavius Josephus writes about Herod Antipas and his adulterous wife and the murder of John the Baptist in his book, Antiquities of the Jews. Here's a short excerpt. He says, John that was called the Baptist was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism. Herod, who feared the great influence John had over the people, sent him a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death." So notice that. Josephus verifies for us that John the Baptist was a real person in the first century in Israel with a large following that he had influence over, but that he was put to death by Herod Antipas, just as the New Testament indicates. Well, archaeologists have discovered the very palace where John the Baptist was killed. Josephus said that the palace was called Machaerus. Archaeologists have unearthed it on top of this hill overlooking the Dead Sea. Arche- uh, excavations, <clears throat> archaeological excavations there are ongoing, but in the meantime, Archaeologists have created this cutaway rendering of what the palace would have looked like in the first century. Walking around the ruins today, you can see the remains of its massive walls and columns, mosaic floors, an elaborate bath, an aqueduct, and cisterns, the very place John the Baptist spent his final days. Great discovery. Moving along, let's talk for a couple of minutes about this man, Caiaphas. The New Testament tells us that the name of the Jewish high priest at the time of Jesus was Caiaphas. He was the one who presided over that late night trial wherein Jesus confessed himself to be the Messiah. 
resulting, of course, in his condemnation. But it was also in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house that the Bible tells us Peter denied knowing Jesus. Was Caiaphas a New Testament invention? No. In 1990, a team of construction workers building a water park approximately two miles south of Jerusalem, accidentally unearthed a first-century Jewish burial cave. Because of its enormous weight, a bulldozer unintentionally broke through the roof of a cave that they did not even know was there. In the cave were several bone ossuaries, stone boxes used to collect the bones of the deceased by the Jews in the first two centuries. On one of the uncharacteristically ornate ossuaries was an inscription in Aramaic mentioning Caiaphas' name, first and last, Joseph Caiaphas, the very name reported by Flavius Josephus. This ossuary is on display today in the museum in Jerusalem as testimony to the fact Caiaphas was a real person. How about Pontius Pilate? Pontius Pilate, the New Testament tells us that Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor at the time of Christ who oversaw Jesus' trial and then sentenced him to death by crucifixion. Was he a legendary person, maybe? No. In June of 1961, a team of Italian archaeologists was digging here in Caesarea on the shore of the beautiful Mediterranean Sea in Israel. While clearing away the sand and overgrowth from the jumbled ruins of this Roman theater, these archaeologists made an amazing discovery. They found this limestone block about three feet tall with an inscription in Latin dating to the early part of the first century mentioning Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. This inscription verified that Pontius Pilate was a real person, that he reigned in the very position ascribed to him in the Gospels, and that as prefect, he would have had the authority to pardon or condemn Jesus, just as the Gospel accounts report. So there's good evidence for Herod, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate. What about this man? Jesus. Well, there's plenty of literary evidence, written evidence for Jesus' life. More than 30 extra-biblical sources mention him within 150 years of his life, including Roman historians like Suetonius and Cornelius Tacitus, Josephus, as well as the Jewish Talmud. I'll talk more about that in our second session later today. But the literary evidence is strong. Plenty of written evidence, but what about stones or coins or inscriptions? Have archaeologists unearthed anything mentioning Jesus along those lines? Well, the answer is yes. On November 5th, 2005, Israeli archaeologists announced an amazing discovery. In the ancient city of Megiddo in northern Israel, a prison inmate at a maximum security prison unearthed the remains of one of the oldest Christian churches ever discovered it dated back to the second or third century AD. You never know what a prisoner might find if you just give him some free time <laughs> and, some, and a shovel out, out in the prison yard. <laughs> I think, Israel, you need to pass out more shovels at the prisons. While digging in the prison yard, Ramil Rosillo discovered a 16 by 32 foot Greek styled mosaic floor that bore an inscription mentioning that the building had been built in the memory of the God 
Jesus Christ. This is the first uncontested archaeological discovery mentioning Jesus by name. Not only does this discovery help reinforce the fact that Jesus existed, it underscores what we have long known, that the early Christians believed Jesus was God. It says this building has been built in the memory of the God, Jesus Christ. Not the angel, Jesus Christ, like the Jehovah's Witnesses would try to convince you of. Not the prophet, Jesus, like Muslims would try to convince you of. Not the good teacher, like some might say Jesus was. No, this church has been dedicated to the God, Jesus Christ. They knew what the Bible had already indicated about Jesus. Great discovery there. What about first century crucifixion? First century crucifixion. According to the Bible, Jesus' hands or wrists were nailed to the cross. You know that. But at one time, critics of the Bible said that crucifixions with nails never even took place in Israel in the first century. They said there's no evidence they happened and nails wouldn't hold up the weight of the bodies. Well, they were shown to be wrong again when a crew of builders from the Israel Ministry of Housing working in Jerusalem accidentally discovered an ancient Jewish cemetery that contained the remains of several men who were killed during the Jewish revolt against Rome in approximately A.D. 70. One of the bone ossuaries that they pulled up out of the ground contained the skeleton of a young man and an inscription of the man's name. But what stunned archaeologists most was how this man died. He was put to death by crucifixion with nails. How was that determined? Well, he still had an iron spike driven through his heel bone. On the screen, you're seeing the actual heel bone with the original spike. You'll notice the head of the spike on the left and the bent tip on the right. Now, Romans typically removed the nails from their victims, and for good reason. Iron was expensive, but apparently this nail was too difficult to remove. The the tip of the nail had been bent back toward the head, likely the result of fitting a knot in the wood. And so the Roman soldiers left it there. And now 2,000 years later, we have solid archaeological evidence that the Romans did crucify people in Israel in the first century with nails, just like the Bible says they did. Amazing discovery. All right, let's head down the home stretch here and talk lastly about persons and places mentioned by Luke. Persons and places mentioned by Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke tells us of the spread of Christianity from Jerusalem to Rome. In his detailed accounts, he mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, nine different islands, the names of ports and different deities that people worshiped and all kinds of details. If you've read the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, you're familiar with that. Was Luke just making these kinds of things up? Some critics of the Bible once thought so. Hans Konzelman, a German scholar and the author of a book called History of Primitive Christianity, a book I don't recommend, uh, declared the book of Acts to be a made-up story beginning to end. Critics believe that Luke had concocted his narrative from the rambling of his imagination one author said, because he ascribed odd titles to authorities and mentioned governors that no one knew. 
Well, one example of a supposed heir can be found in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. There, Luke tells us that John the Baptist's preaching ministry was taking place when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene. Well, for years, scholars pointed to that verse as evidence that Luke did not know what he was talking about, since everybody knew that Lysanias was not a tetrarch, but rather the ruler of a different place by the name of Chalcis, hundreds of miles away, half a century earlier. And so they said, if Luke can't get that basic fact right, nothing he's written can be trusted. And a host of Bible critics accuse Luke of making a gross chronological blunder. Uh, in addition to other comments, I still have some other old books wherein they laid out these charges regarding Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Well, informed historians today are not talking that way about Luke any longer. John McRae, a veteran archaeologist, a, a respected archaeologist who's overseen excavations in Israel, tells us why Luke chapter 3, verse 1 was cleared up. He says, an inscription was later found from the time of Tiberius from AD 14 to 37, which names Lysanias as Tetrarch in Abala, that's another name for Abilene, near Damascus, just as Luke had written, it turned out there had been two government officials named Lysanias. Once more, Luke was shown to be exactly right. So it was the critics who made the gross chronological blunder, not Luke. And this is just one example of where Luke has proven to be right. In fact, to date, more than 80 details in the book of Acts alone have now been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. That was just one quick example, but more than 80 of these. We could do a week's worth of presentations just on the reliability of the, the book of Acts when it comes to archaeology and historical verification. So we've covered a lot over the last 45 minutes or so. If you'd like to remember a handful of these discoveries that we've discussed today so that you can more readily bring them up in future conversations, perhaps, with people who question your confidence in the Bible, why don't you jot down or remember this acronym, P-I-C-K-S, the word PICS. Okay, that will serve as a memory aid to remind you of five different discoveries we've talked about today. And of course, a pick is a common tool that you'll find in an archaeologist's an archaeologist tool chest. So I think it's an appropriate acronym. The P can remind you of the Pontius Pilate inscription found at Caesarea. The Pontius Pilate inscription found at Caesarea. The I reminds us of the Isaiah scroll and the ancient manuscript copies of the Old Testament found at Qumran. So the Pontius Pilate inscription, the Isaiah scroll. The C reminds us of the Christ mosaic. The Christ mosaic, the mosaic floor unearthed at Megiddo that mentions the God, Jesus Christ. The K reminds us of the King David inscription, unearthed at Dan in northern Israel. The King David inscription, unearthed at Dan in northern Israel. And the S can be a reminder of the Roman spike. 
the Roman spike in the heel of a first century Jewish crucifixion victim. So you're the first church I've ever shared that acronym with. God, I think, just gave me the idea about a week ago, and I decided to whip it together and throw it into the, the, the mix of this teaching. I don't know if it'll be easy to remember those five points, but I thought, you know what? We cover so much in 45 minutes. How are people going to remember at least a few of these? So I've put that together. You can give it a try. Maybe it'll help you in future conversations. But I do tell you about these discoveries today. Why am I passionate about this topic? Why was I excited to be asked to teach on this topic? Because I love to assure people that you can read the Bible with the highest degree of confidence. This book is trustworthy from beginning to end. Jesus himself summarized the entirety of God's word with one word. In a conversation with God the Father in John chapter 17, verse 17, he said, thy word is truth. This book tells us the truth about our maker, and for that we can be incredibly thankful. What a blessing it is to know God and to have the Bible to guide us through this life. Do you know the loving, merciful God revealed to us in the pages of the Bible? You can know him. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross. Because of his great love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place to suffer the judgment you deserved for your sins so that you could be forgiven so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with him. But of course, he rose from the grave three days later, and today he offers all mankind the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. What a gracious offer God has made us. We deserve judgment, condemnation, and death for our sins. And God says, "Ah, actually, I've got something way better for you forgiveness of all your sins, everlasting life, and reconciliation back into a right relationship with me. That is an amazing offer, friends. How do you lay hold of that offer? How do you lay hold of the gift? Jesus himself made it so simple. He said, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's it. Jesus did all the work. All God wants you now to do is to place your faith in him and what he accomplished there on the cross. And you can do that today. You can call out to God in the quietness of your heart, right there in your seat before you walk out these doors today and say, God, forgive me for my sins. I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll do that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. If you've been on the run from God, today's the day to stop. Do a U-turn, repent, and get right with them. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, I encourage you to continue in the faith, picking up the Bible on a regular basis, reading it, fully confident that it is trustworthy in everything it has to say, from the front cover to the back, from Genesis to the book of Revelation, you can take what it says to the bank. It's trustworthy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Whew. We covered a lot there. I feel like the trap door is about to open up and get me off the stage. You guys are headed. You guys want, you're like, he's going long, man. We got to get to lunch. Let me just quickly mention a couple of things real fast. If you enjoy learning about these discoveries, would like to go deeper, I have written a full color book on the topic. 
Um, it addresses lots of discoveries we didn't have time to even touch on today. It's called Archaeological Evidence for the Bible. It's got more than 100 color photos in it of discoveries, like the kinds we've discussed today. I also have a 58-minute long DVD of this exact same presentation I just shared with you, pre-recorded at a church. We've got all the visuals in it there for you if you'd like to review it or go over it with a friend or something. If you stop by my resource table, you're going to see that we have 34 different DVDs there. They're not documentaries. They're me giving presentations in front of live church congregations, but we fade in all the PowerPoint visuals onto your television screen for you. But we know that most of you aren't using DVDs anymore. I don't. Uh, So what we decided to do is put the entire library of videos, they're all about an hour long, onto a tiny little USB flash drive the size of a AA battery. You can stick that right into a USB port on your television and pull up any of the videos there. You can stick it into a computer USB port and pull up the videos there, or even transfer the videos onto any kind of smartphone or tablet. Uh, We give you some simple directions on how to do that. So that might interest some of you. And then one last resource I'll highlight is this book, One Minute Answers to Skeptics. Of course, atheists and critics of Christianity say there's no evidence God exists. Men wrote the Bible, so you can't trust it. They say the Bible uh, endorses slavery and genocide. It demeans women and promotes hatred of homosexuals. You've heard all those claims. None of them are true. But did you feel ready to at least offer a concise, intelligent biblical one-minute response to those kinds of claims. A lot of Christians are caught flat-footed and don't know what to say when those kinds of charges are made. That's why I wrote that book, just to give God's people some quick, easy ways to answer those kinds of objections. So I thought I'd highlight a few resources for you uh, on my table over there by the coffee. Let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get you out of here for lunch soon. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word. What a blessing it is, God, to have the Bible to inform us of who you are and to guide us into everlasting life in your kingdom. And God, we're so thankful for these archaeological discoveries that have helped to confirm all these different details in the Bible. It serves to just encourage us today and strengthen our faith. And God, we do want to um, ask that you give us a renewed thirst and hunger to read the Bible. We don't want to just know the Bible's trustworthy. We want to live by what it has to say. So God, we pray that you would stir up our hearts to read it and to walk in its light. And God, also, if there'd be anyone here today who doesn't yet know you in a personal uh, way, God, we pray that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would turn to Jesus and place their faith in him today for the salvation of their soul. Help them to do that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.